Hello, and welcome back to The Crow and the Raven, a weekly podcast featuring two friends discussing various topics. Our last few episodes are available on Anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Prime Music, Google Podcasts, Podvine, and Spotify. We will be recording a new episode live every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, with the episode going up on all podcatchers Wednesday morning at 2 a.m. by 2 a.m., we do have audience appreciation set up through Stripe on Anchor.fm if you'd like to support the podcast. Questions can also be posted on that Spotify page for the podcast, as well as on our Discord server where we host the live sessions. We'll do our very best to answer those questions towards the end of each podcast, so make sure you post those questions. So as always, for our new audience members, I'm your resident Crow Isaiah. And I'm your resident Raven Charles. Today we are going to be discussing, or more so just going over, crazy, amazing stories, or stories that are hard to believe. Yeah, absolutely. And some of these, uh, even when I was doing my research for them, I was like, there's no fucking way that's true. Um, but all of these are validated with sources, except for one of mine, which is going to be more of a personal touch. Um, it's a personal story from my life that did in fact happen. And there are witnesses to that fact. Um, but it's not like verifiable through, you know, irrefutable peer reviewed evidence based sources. You know what I mean? Um, but all of these are true and there's from my end, some, most of them are just super weird, but I'm excited to share them with all of you. Wonderful. A lot of my stories kind of just, uh, they kind of bounce between weird, creepy, and mm. kind of scary. There's I'm like all for two, it. two of them are kind of like, uh, um, what do you call them? When you're the the kind of stories you tell to be like, you know, this could happen, or this uh-huh. this could be a real thing that could really happen. All right. So, are we flipping a coin today, or who's going first? <laughs> I don't. I have no coin in hand. Uh, oh, that's an easy fix. We just go over here to google.com. Oh, you know what? Alexa, flip a coin. Heads. Okay, flipping. Tails. All right, your choice. All right, well, I'll go ahead and start with this shorter one. This is kind of, this is a personal experience right here called Why Does Nobody Listen to Me? Okay. <clears throat> a while ago, I had the most excruciating pain in my abdomen that I have that I have ever felt in my life. Can't even come up with words to describe it. Went to three separate doctors who told me I had a virus and I was exaggerating, had a low pay to- pain tolerance. My entire family said the same thing. Flash forward to two weeks later, and I finally found out the terrifying cause. I had to have emergency surgery because mm. turns out I had an autoimmune disease that was attacking my large intestine. It was so last minute my intestine had already broken and practically disintegrated. What followed was septic shock, a coma, and two resuscitations. Flash forward three weeks later, the doctors are telling me they're moving me out of the ICU and I'm begging them not to because I still don't feel any better. Again, you're exaggerating. You're being negative. Your mindset influences your physical state. Until I begged them to do another CT scan, and they did. Turns out I had huge abscesses that the antibiotics weren't getting to. Two more operations and three more weeks in ICU. Why does nobody listen to me? 
You know, and I've heard that sentiment at the end there from so many different people across a a wide spectrum of issues. Um, I don't think most of them were to this scale, obviously, Um, but it, it blows my mind how many times whether it's um, a doctor, especially, or something as minor as, you know, a better path forward at work. How many times the the voice of reason or the voice of no, we need to look at this is just completely uh, overturned or overruled by fucking dumbasses that won't listen. <laughs> like it, it blows my mind. For sure. And I think that's why a lot of people like in general, are more comfortable when the doctor comes in and sits with you in the waiting room and actually, or not waiting room in the uh, examination room and mm-hmm. actually talks with you about what's going on. And they try and get a feel for what's going on with you because when they're just going off of, well, you're having these symptoms. So it must be this, right? I'm the doctor. I'm the professional. I know. And it's like, well, you don't know everything that's going on exactly. Right. And I'm been very lucky knock on wood. Uh, with my current uh, primary care, every single time I've gone to him, he's done exactly what you said. He sits in the room. He listens to what I have to say. He does the mm-hmm. examination. And even if his exam doesn't really turn up anything, he double checks. And he's like, okay, I'm not feeling anything, but you said this. Am I hearing you correctly? Am I in the right spot? If I am and I'm not feeling or see- detecting anything from an educational standpoint, what else is going on in your life? Could it be a stress thing? You know, and he's like, he touches base in multiple different avenues. He doesn't mm-hmm. just go like, he doesn't just, you know, tap your stomach and go, well, I don't feel anything. So you're making it up. Like he doesn't just automatically jump to that. He he does, you know, take the time and stuff. So I'm very, very lucky in that respect. And like the last time I went, I was actually pretty pleasantly surprised. I was in a lot of pain and he goes, well, I know you're in pain without even having looked at you because you don't come to see me unless it's like, you're on your deathbed. Mm-hmm. The last time I saw you, you were pretty sure you had COVID and you couldn't go to work and you were having a hard time even getting up in the morning. And he's like, and now you're in here saying you're in a lot of pain. He's like, so I already know it must be where most people would put, Oh, I'm at an eight and have stubbed their toe. Your five is like most people's 10. So what's going on? <laughs> yeah. You know, so I'm very grateful to have him as my uh, PCM. See, in my past, I I had a a really good doctor. When during the during my marriage, we had we my entire family had the same doctors, the two, same two doctors, their husband and wife, and they're fantastic, fantastic doctors. They were family doctors, um, and the way they were with our kids and everything were fantastic. They were with my ex wife at the time. It was fantastic. The way they were with me was fantastic. And towards the end of like the marriage and everything, when I actually was starting to talk and come out about my depression and everything, the when I was at my deepest, darkest moments, that doctor like set aside time after all the appointments. Like when he should have been going home, he was sitting with me in the examination room and talking about like everything that was going on with me, where I was, what my state of mind was, you know, getting a feel off of my uh wife at the time what the situation was like between me and her and stuff like that and we were just all talking and he's like now i want you to know that this isn't just a one-time thing if you need to come in even if it's if if it's you and you only have and you have your kids with you 
Um, we can put, we can take them, have a nurse take them into the other room and sit with them while you, we are sitting in here with me and we can sit and talk about it because medication doesn't always fix depression. It doesn't always help mm -hmm. depression. It's like, so just if you need to do something, please, you know, you know, contact me, get a hold of me. We'll set time aside, even if it's after hours, you know, when we're supposed to be home that we can get you in here and you can talk about it. And I was like, that's, that's that awesome. was like the kind of doctor that people want you know you don't want people that are going to come in and be like give you that five second look over and be like mm -hmm. all right well this is what's wrong with you let's go i got meds for you let's go yeah and i hear it a lot and that's amazing that you had a doctor like that i don't want to pass that over or skip over that um that that's absolutely amazing i'm glad you had that person in in that situation especially um and i i hear the why doesn't anybody listening to me a lot from uh a women especially and in my experience, not saying that they're the, you know, that's how it is for everybody. Um, but I hear it a lot from women, especially when they're saying, you know, I, I know something is wrong. This isn't normal compared to my, you know, usual, uh, the way my body usually reacts to things, or this isn't, you know, like a normal cycle for me. And instantly they're just like, Oh, you're being emotion emotional or you're it's just hormones or you need to just, you know, be less emotional or you're hysterical or, you know, we think it's an anxiety issue. It's immediately everything, but something could actually be wrong. Absolutely. And it just, it drives me absolutely crazy. It's like, uh, it, you listen to the patient, believe the patient until you have a reason not to believe the patient. And even then, you should still believe the patient to a degree of like, well, we can't find a source of the pain, but they believe they're in pain. Even if it's a psych issue, they believe they're in pain, which is could be causing pain. Like, mm -hmm. so, so even in that extreme situation, they're not necessarily wrong or lying to you. Right. But, and uh, you know, to, to some degree, I, I understand it because hypochondriacs, you know, they, right. uh, and it's, so to a degree, I understand, but at the same time, you don't just dust off every patient you have at that same time, you know? Right. Kind of a happy medium. Right. All right. Well, your story. All right. So this goes all the way back to the 18th Amendment of 1920 in the United States of America. Holy shit. So many people might have seen like Facebook memes or strange things like that and kind of just written it off because let's face it. Anytime somebody claims something is a thing through a meme on Facebook, we immediately just tune out and okay. Yeah, whatever. We most of the time just believe it's at that point, it's either BS or misconstrued, what have you. So this, the 18th amendment in 1920 made prohibition a law as soon as Congress ratified it. And that prohibition was specifically against drinking alcohol so obviously this is america and passing a law to stop people from drinking didn't do shit um all it did was did was it took that economy pushed it underground speakeasies started popping up everywhere bootleggers were making stuff in the hills or i should say um moonshiners were making it up in the stills and bootleggers were running it from the hills down into the towns and all that stuff We've all seen, you know, movies that kind of take take into that whole thing or, you know, um, the 
haunted TV shows like Ghost Hunters that they find a, uh, an older house that still has that speakeasy, like hidden doorway and stuff like that. Um, we've all kind of seen that part of it. But the part I want to talk about is the federal government, in order to combat it because they really wanted prohibition to work, was to eliminate the supply. That's what they ended up doing to try and mitigate this because the law wasn't working. So at the time, almost all of the bootleg liquor was distilled from what was called industrial alcohol, such as methanol wood al- or wood alcohol. So those types of alcohols are already dangerous to drink. Um, and there's a lot of, pro, um, as we're, some of our listeners are probably familiar with, prohibition area booze could tend to make people go blind or severely damage their eyesight because of how it was being distilled uh, and created out in the hills and whatnot. So the government wanted to, instead of educating the public or maybe taking, you know, bringing it back a little bit or, you know, changing that uh, 18th Amendment, they decided, nope, the best deterrent is to make it more dangerous. So in 19, around 1927, they passed federal guidelines that required companies that made these chemicals to add even more dangerous mixes to these already toxic chemicals. The stuff they added were kerosene, straight gasoline, uh, brucine, benzene, cadmium, iodine, zinc, mercury salts, nicotine, ether, formaldehyde, chloroform, camper, carbolic acid, quinine, and acetone. Those are all good for you. Yeah. So the chemical formulas had to include up to 10% of methyl alcohol on top of all of those other things. And methyl alcohol is a chemical that has a fatal dose as low as 25 milliliters. And they're making 10% of the chemicals they're putting in to make booze that chemical, which puts it way above 25 milliliters in a lot of cases. So as you may have guessed, a lot of people died. Uh, 66 people died on Christmas Day in 1926 from industrial alcohol poisoning. 41 more New Year's Day 1927. There are claims that up to 10 thousand people or more were directly killed by the government's own decision and regulation to poison alcohol. Damn. 10,000 oh, 10, or more Americans just dead because they tried to drink alcohol. Because they needed, they apparently needed that alcohol. <laughs> well, and wow. back then, I don't know the history of it. I'm going to put that out first and I'm not a professional. I'm not a historian, but my question to that would be, isn't it possible that we didn't fully understand alcoholism when we passed that law in 1920 bringing in prohibition? And we basically the same thing we talked about during the pandemic, right? We had to keep liquor stores open because they were terrified that if you had alcoholics in their homes, with no access to alcohol, that that could increase the rate of self-harm or harm to others, especially family members. Oh, yeah. So if we had a bunch of alcoholics in 1920, and instead of slowly closing the tap, you just shut the valve completely, 
what else are they going to do? Yeah. Except to go out and find it where they can, or in this case, make it. Around that time, I wonder if alcoholism was even like realized, like what you're saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know when it was like a, a, you know, added to the, you know, disease table or whatever you call it. Yeah, you bring up a really good question. I wonder when like it was realized that alcoholism was a real condition. I'm going to look that up. When was alcoholism recognized as a disease? Apparently in 1956. There you go. Wow. That's what I got too. American Medical Association declared addiction to alcohol and other drugs to be a disease in 1956. So yeah, chances are in 1920, they had no idea. That's only going to be like almost 70 years ago. Uh, it's a, exactly a, uh, well, the uh, prohibition was 102 years ago. Well, well, yeah, but I'm talking about alcoholism. Yeah. That, uh, that's that's crazy. crazy. That is absolutely insane. I didn't even have that part researched yet. Wowzer. All right, back to you, buddy. That was my first <laughs> weird one. <laughs> How are you going to follow that one? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. A lot of people might already know this, but uh, maybe not. So where the phrase saved by the bell came from. Oh, I don't know this one. Uh, you I see. This is the thing. I think I think you do. You just <laughs> don't realize it yet. OK. So let's see. Uh, this is from all that's interesting dot com. The term saved by the bell is an idiom commonly used to describe people who escaped difficult situations thanks to a last-minute solution, but the lighthearted phrase actually may have a true scary story behind it related to a medical condition known as catalepsy. Catalepsy is a medical condition in which a patient endures an uncontrolled state of muscle rigidity and unresponsiveness. Mm. The condition is often linked to episodes of catatonia. So even though it's known now, in the past... People just thought that when this happened to them, when catalepsy happened, when their body went rigid and became unresponsive, that they were dead. And so they were mistakenly buried alive. Um, and so after newspapers started uh, finding these news, newspaper started finding all these different things that are happening, all these tragic endings, all these, all that stuff. Um, they started taking precautions for it. Um. So they started doing little quick fix solutions by doctors and gravekeepers. Hmm. Um, one well-intentioned yet morbid solution was the creation of waiting mortuaries in which they just have the dead bodies or the uh, unresponsive bodies sitting in a mortuary or a hospital and just be watched over for a few days. Mortuaries were stocked with food, wine, cigars, things just in case that they wake wake up and they need something, food, drink, that they'd have something until somebody came along and opened the doors up and checked out to see if they were alive still or not. Hmm. Another more gruesome solution to avoid burying those who are still alive was to perform examinations, which would test the deadness. This, this, this is the quoted term there, test the deadness of the patient. 
people thought to be dead had their fingers hacked off or endured smoke Ugh. being literally blown up their butts. Hey now. So that's another term, smoke getting smoke blown up your ass. I knew it was a legitimate thing, but I didn't know they used it to test the dead. <laughs> the assumption was that if the person didn't wake up, then that meant they were dead because they'd be feeling something. But what they didn't know is that those people that were in, in those uh, events of catalepsy were unresponsive to pain stimulus. So it wouldn't have mattered anyway. It would not have mattered at, at all. So... Uh, but After, if they sit up and they say harder, daddy, then they know they're good. They don't bury yeah, them. If something else became rigid, <laughs> <laughs> then I think they're looking at something that might be okay. They just slide their hand down slowly, grab yours, and just bring it up to their throat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, it kind of <laughs> makes me wonder if that's where uh, narcolepsy may have started, too. Huh. I don't know, though. I don't know. Don't take... Don't. Are you saying narcolepsy or do you mean necrophilia? Necrophilia. Sorry. Did I say narcolepsy? You yeah, did. And right. I was like, necrophilia. At first, I was like, huh, well, maybe because of catatonia. And I was like, no, wait a minute. That's a whole different thing. You got what I meant, though. Oh, yeah. I didn't get what you meant. <laughs> Heads in the same space. Some doctor was like, oh, some weirdo was just came out and said, I think people are coming back from the dead. I definitely need to examine them with this hard rod Ooh, to make yes. sure they're dead. <laughs> Don't ask any questions. <laughs> we're doing it live. And so people were still being buried alive at that point. And so they created the safety coffins in the 18th and 19th century uh, Europe, Europe uh, Victorian England. Um. So they decided to make up a, a few different different options to make. Uh, caskets were designed with above-ground horns or bells that a person who found themselves mistakenly buried alive could ring from the inside. You So I don't know if you've ever seen these, but like, because um, there are still some graveyards and uh, grave sites that still have these. Um, and depending on, especially depending on what country you actually look up this kind of situation at. They have other things that they do with those too, but um, so there's a bell that sits right above the grave, and mm -hmm. it's usually un it's usually caged. the The uh, bell is usually caged so nobody comes along, knocks it off, breaks it, or anything like that. Um, and the, there's a string that runs down to the casket, runs all the way through the ground down to the casket, and if they wake up, they sit there and pull the string and ring the bell. And so they'd be saved by the bell. Ah. Um, I knew the string part, and the, some of them even had a pedal on the bottom, so you would just kick it with your foot. Yeah. But I didn't know that that's what saved by the bell was. Yep. Um, some of these safety coffins were also equipped with a stash of poison in case the person was never found or never got checked up on because nobody heard the bell. They would have a stash of poison to take just in case it was a hopeless moment. Um, other models used glass panes that would fog up if the person was still breathing. Some had tubes that the gravekeepers would have to sniff each day Ew. to confirm that the body inside was actually decomposing. And other people, which this this matter, I think, took place with uh, what do you call them? The uh, the marble buildings up in the, in the oh, graveyards. Mausoleums? Mausoleums, yeah. 
they were buried with keys to their own coffin in their pocket. Because if if you were able to unlock your coffin with six feet of dirt above you, <laughs> I mean, that's 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 quite quite an extraordinary feat. But so, the Bell models. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. I, I have I a question just, about this whole thing, but you might cover it. So just go ahead. Okay. This is the last little bit. But the Bell models were among the most pervasive, so they were the most common. And like I said, even today, you will still see those mm. uh, out at some sites, uh, probably mostly England. But I know that I've seen some uh, documentaries where even some grave sites here in uh, America have those bells above the grave sites. Yeah. And, that, and but, yeah, I saw one. I don't know if it was for the same purpose, but I believe it was that it was like almost a periscope that went all the way down into the coffin and they Mm -hmm. would seal it with basically like cement around it. And it would go all the way up through the ground out to where the gravekeeper was or, you know, above the grave and the gravekeeper would walk by and it had a mirror at the bottom and a mirror at the top that were angled perfectly. So you could look down the periscope and look at the body you could Ugh. see if, you know, they were banging around for their life or not. Jesus, that'd be creepy as hell, wouldn't it? <laughs> and um, the question I had was, I don't know if you found this in, in yours, but isn't it also where the term graveyard shift comes from? Yeah. Yep. Actually, yeah, that is it. Because they'd have to be, somebody would have to be working all night in order for them to keep a constant eye on the bell or right. any other form of trying to see if anybody's still alive underground. I and it's funny, we use the graveyard <laughs> the term graveyard shift to just be like, oh yeah, I have to, you know, go to work late. <laughs> yep. Oh I know. It has a little darker origin though. Yeah. Saved by the bell. In fact, not so commonly it's, used for high school. Yeah, I was about to say so it's not about high school students. Zach can't save you now. <laughs> So my <laughs> fucking Zach, <laughs> Zach and Screech, man. You know, you know what uh, Screech is up to lately. Last I saw, he was in the news for being uh, indecent in public. Um the the last I hadn't heard that one, but the last I heard was that he shot a uh, adult film. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, well, ladies might might have wanted him. I don't know. <sighs> I'm pretty sure it was well after Saved by the Bell ended. Oh yeah, I'm sure it was. <laughs> He's got a porno stash for it. I know. I know he can grow a porno stash for it. Maybe he's the a thin Ron Jeremy. I don't know. <laughs> You're turd, man. <laughs> <laughs> so this one is a maritime. Started out, I should say, as a maritime adventure. Published in 1838, written by none other than the king of suspense and horror, Edgar Allan Poe. And in this book, he describes a situation in which cannibalism ensues. Unbeknownst to most of the world, 50 years later, in real life, 
everything that was in the book would come true. So the novel is done in such a way that it's like a mock memoir, almost like the way you would uh, read the original uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, how it's all like journal entries. Mm -hmm. So a student becomes friends with a son of a ship captain. They do all kinds of, you know, as it says, daring do on the uh, high seas and all that good stuff. So they agree that the ship's cap son of the ship captain will help this kid stow away on the father's whaling ship, the Grampus so that he can, you know, experience all this. Well, while they're out at sea, a mutiny takes place and then they hit a monstrous storm. So the ship captain's son and the stowaway end up being in charge of the ship's battered remains accompanied by two members of the crew. Their names were Dirk Peters and Richard Parker. So that's about halfway point of this story. They live for days off little more than the rationed remains of a turtle. And they're almost delirious from thirst. So they start having to contemplate the grossest thing and unimaginable thing that usually ends up happening in this situation. Who is going to be murdered and eaten by the remaining members. But it's the only way they can think of to survive. So in accordance with the custom of the sea, they draw lots. It comes down to Pym and Parker and Parker ends up drawing the short straw. Um, This uh, child initial response to this novel was far from favorable. So that's kind of how the story ends, right? Most people called it. uh, They were very critical of it due to the depictions of violence. Cause back then you can't post it or uh, post it. You can't write about that stuff. Uh, Also it had nautical inaccuracies cause Poe wasn't a sailor. Oh, big, well, sure. big fucking yeah. surprise, right? Um, <laughs> and even Poe himself eventually was just like, oh yeah, it's a very silly book. Probably because he meant it serious and it didn't take off. So he's like just trying to kind of roll with it. Sure, yeah. You know, um, but over the over the decades, people started to change their mind. Jules Verne uh, actually wrote a sequel in 1897 titled Antarctic Mystery. Um, It's also said to prefigure Moby Dick. It supposedly inspired Henry James and Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, Oh, wow, really? Yeah, so it, it, after his, you know, after he wrote it, and after all these people were talking shit on it, it inspired all these people, and Yann Martell who wrote, I believe the life of Pi, the tiger in that, in that story is called Richard Parker, the same name as the person from the book. So here's where it gets weird. Uh, let's see. A man named Nigel Parker writes about the striking similarities between this book 
and the fate of his aunt, his forebear. I'm not sure if that's his father or grandfather, but you know, somebody before him, um, who ate a turtle resorting after, you know, before they resorted to cannibalism with his, uh, real life, uh, ancestor being the victim. This Nigel Parker relayed all of this in a letter to a parapsychology buff named Arthur Coastal. Uh, and he starts investigating this uh, this whole thing, and he publishes a letter in the Sunday Times in 1974. Come on. So uh, the episode... Yeah, 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 yeah. Get to the point. Sorry. God damn it, where is it? I'm trying to find all this <laughs> you, shit, man. I brain farted. Lose your page? Yeah, I did. So Yeah. Uh but what ended up happening is that this guy's forebear, Richard Parker, was on a sea vessel. The vessel goes through a horrible storm. They get shipwrecked. There are four survivors. The person that draws the short, they, they go through all their stores. They have to eat a turtle that they're all trying to ration out. They say, Hey, we're going to have to eat one of us to, to, for the others to survive. They drew lots. The person that got the shortest lot, was Richard Parker, the same exact name as the character that died. And they all, the, the four survive, the three survivors murdered him and ate and ate him to survive, made it back to the mainland and reported what they had, they had done 50 years after Edgar Allan Poe wrote the book. That is a pretty much uh, play by play of reality. 50 years before it occurred. Man. That'd be something funky, man. And the, imagine, imagine reading that book and then like finding, like finding that in the newspaper going, wait, did I, did I, did I read a book or? Yeah. And the, uh, some of the like paranormal folks out there, have pondered the question, did Edgar Allan Poe somehow tap into something that maybe in a dream state he saw the future, or was he a time traveler? But that's all fantastical stuff for another episode. Yeah, that's that was, that's always been a question about Edgar Allan Poe, I think. Mm-hmm. Cause he has some weird shit going on. That's one of them. Oh, he certainly did. That's, you know, and that, that draws into like, I think you brought it up to me before. Like, but like you said, it's like when it comes to like the fantastical stuff, we could do that a whole nother episode, but you brought it up just briefly to me. Uh, we were talking about different topics and stuff what, a couple weeks ago. And you brought up, like you were sending me pictures of like these, um, Actors that had oh, like yeah. people that looked exactly like them back in like way, way, way back in the past. Yep. John Travolta, Nicolas Cage. Yep. 
Yeah. So I, I've even found we do have time travel. I even found one or reincarnation, but I even found yeah. one at work, right? We have all these really old pictures of New York Army National Guardsmen way back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking like where you had to pose for like an hour and a half or to fucking take the picture. We have pictures that are that old, right? In the middle of one of the pictures, in the middle, just slightly to the left, is a picture of a man who looks like I've held up the picture side by side. He is a almost, I would swear to God, like a clone of a guy I served with up at Four Drum. He looks exactly like him down to like, wow. like his nose, everything, even the way like this guy, when he would look at you, especially if you're like in, the, he always had that like squint, you know, like he couldn't exactly make you out. One yeah. of those guys, especially if you had like the sun to your back or something, he always had that squint when he looked at you. Guy has the same fucking squint. Like it's crazy. They look That's like insane, twins. man. And, but this picture's taken what? Like, over a hundred years before I knew the guy. Yeah. That so crazy to come across like that. Is it coincidence? You know, it drives you crazy. Yeah. And like, even if it's just, uh, the guy I knew is a great, 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 great grandson of this guy. Right. Mm-hmm. One, what's the likelihood that, he had this distant relative serving in the national New York army national guard that he never knew about. And he himself served in active duty while hating the national guard because <laughs> he didn't think that they, you know, they're not the real army. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. And even more, what's the likelihood that I with no intention of doing so uh, at the time end up joining said New York Army National Guard. And then years later, after joining, getting a job at a facility for the New York Army National Guard, wherein a picture resides of his ancestor that I would walk past every day. Yeah, and you would actually take notice of it. Yeah, like it's the it's like 18 coincidences deep. It's insane. Mm. Mm. What do they call it? It's like that seven degrees or six degrees or something. Yeah. Six degrees of separation. There's a guy, there's even a guy on uh, TikTok. not to get off on too much of a tangent, but he does like, um, uh, I think it was, I'm trying to remember the, the, I think it's Henry Ford. He does like six degrees to Henry Ford for anybody from him to Henry Ford based on whoever people suggest. Oh, really? And he's been able to do it a lot. It's insane. Wow. Like one of them was his grandfather was, um, or his great grandfather, something like that worked at like an automotive, uh, factory for a different company. But he, you know, obviously has a picture of him and that great grandfather together. And then he has a picture of that guy, his great grandfather with his boss, his boss has a picture with the CEO of that automotive company. And then that CEO was pictured golfing with Henry Ford. Wow. <laughs> but he, he's been able to do it so many times. It's, it's insane. Well, so like you said, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but I mean, it's, 
it's it's insane to me to like see that. And I mean, like, there's there's especially if it's not a relative or somebody that's in the family, and you see somebody that's like exactly that. Yeah. And and take on those little traits, like you said, the the dude had that little squint. Yeah. There's it's there's a great oh. episode on uh, the unexplained with William Shatner. I know I've mentioned this probably way too many times, but that show, I mean, but one of the episodes that was really, really strange was this guy. I'll try to make it short. He um, was always kind of fascinated with the civil war Um, being raised in the South. It's kind of, you know, commonplace. And he never really, he was just always kind of intrigued with it. That was about as far as it went. Um, he's on a road trip with his wife and he says, Hey, why don't we, we're near the area. They're seeing signs for it. Why don't we go check out the battlefield of Antietam? Uh, which is one of the major battles. Mm -hmm. He's standing there leaning on an old wooden fence, looking out across the battlefield. And all of a sudden he can't breathe. He has a sharp pain in his chest, his leg, his wrist, and it's so intense that he falls on the ground. His wife's freaking out. They can't figure it out. He's his vision is blurring and he swears he could see like people in old attire. And then he kind of came to and he was like, what the fuck just happened? He had no idea. So he kind of tries to shrug it off and he's like, you know, we'll see the doctor when I get home kind of thing. So they go into the visitor like greeting area, whatever you call it. The, um, visitor information center mm-hmm. and you know, he's trying to catch his breath and get some water and whatnot. And he's sitting on this bench and he just so happens to look over and they have a magazine that features the battle of Antietam. And it's like a little history about the battle and key figures and all this stuff opens it up. He's thumbing through it. And there are portraits of some of the officers. Cause remember back then every officer got a fucking portrait. Um, well, all of the people that fought and died didn't get shit, uh, kind of like it is today. But anyway, the, uh, all these officers and whatnot had all these portraits. He finds one and he's dumbfounded. He's like, I know who this is. And they're like, what do you mean? And he goes, it's, I shave that face every morning as he puts it. He is a spitting image of this guy from the civil war. And this, this guy, this whole story happened in like, he told this story in like 2017. I want to say it was, um, or 2019, somewhere in there. So it's not that long ago. Yeah. But he, he experienced it like 15 years before that. So, I mean, still very far removed from the civil war, obviously. Um, but he's a spitting image of this guy. Then he, goes to the doctor they can't explain what happened he has nothing wrong with him but he does develop varicose veins which are not uncommon right no not at all but every single place he got varicose veins is one of the sites the officer was shot at the battle of antietam And it's not like he has long varicose veins that like go up his whole leg. He has these Mm -hmm. little like dime sized, like two little veins that are varicose in each spot. And he has a birthmark and a scar. Uh, He has a birthmark on one of them 
and a scar over the top of it where he was injured previously. He's like, it's just weird that the parts of my body that have an issue are the same spots that this guy got shot in. Yeah. So that's going to have to be another episode because I, I totally believe in that. Oh yeah. I totally believe in that. Yeah. There's, um, and I know we're making it another episode, but while while we're on the subject, (laughs) there are also cases of children that remember a past life. Oh yeah. And they did a massive study on it. A lot of the, not all, but a lot of those kids had birthmarks at the site of the injury that the kids said caused their death before. Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. Freaky. And you know what? We both keep saying not to keep going off rails and not to do this, but (laughs) that's what we're known for by now. I'm sure. I'm sure. And I mean, they, (laughs) it's not like they aren't kind of fitting into today's topic because it's weird, true shit. Right. Right. Well, I'm pretty sure that, you know, I'm pretty sure that's part of the reason why people like us, though, because we just flow. We we flow, so it's all right. I, I don't see. We don't need to apologize. <laughs> we, we're sorry that we're not sorry that we're on tangents. Yeah, we're sorry that we're not sorry that you should. You feel we should be sorry, maybe, but we're not sorry. All right. So that was my Edgar Allan Poe. Wow, that's. But I mean, that's crazy to like. Something that was written so long ago, like lined up. Per- it was like the Simpsons. It was like a Simpsons episode. It, oh man, the Simpsons do it all the time. It's freaky. And we're talking about like episodes recorded, you know, what late eighties, early nineties uh-huh. of the Simpsons that line up in like events that happened in 2000, 2002, yeah. 2011. It's I mean, like, Oh my one God. Of, one of the more recent ones that I heard about, um, I saw a side by side done of it, and it's insane. Trump won the election in 2016, and there's that now infamous news clip where he's going down the escalator. Mm-hmm. In The Simpsons, they made a joke about him running for president. One of the scenes from that episode, he's going down an escalator, and everybody's like, "Yeah, so right," but he's going down the escalator. His wife and his entourage are in the exact same position as they are in The Simpsons, as in real life. And there's a kid that holds up a sign that drops the sign off the side of the es- the side of the uh, rail, and it falls down past the escalator in The Simpsons. That's exactly what happened in real life, at the exact same moment, at the exact same position. It's it's too accurate to it's, like not be suspicious, man. <laughs> I know, I know. It, it's almost like, oh my, it's 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 so creepy. Like our, like, and the weird thing is, it's like you want to be like, did somebody go back in time? But if you had the ability to time travel, and not shitting on The Simpsons or any other program, but why would you go back in time? With all this knowledge, and all you do is make a comedy animated show showing what's going to happen 50 years from now. Like, (laughs) it's such a weird thing to do. So, I mean, if time travel was a thing, okay, if it was real right now, if we could process it and everything. So, right now, what the theory is based off of is you cannot go into the past and reveal anything of the future because of not just, like, 
butterfly effect. You know, it causes a whole bunch of other things to happen after one small thing is changed. It causes other things in the timeline to happen. Right, but it also right. breaks that timeline into multiple timelines, causing irreversible changes. It might change something in your timeline or it might change something in a different timeline and that timeline splits off. So it might not change anything, but it might change something, which also blends into the Mandela effect. Or it, but, could, or it could even, if you were able to go back in time and change something, you're not changing the timeline you came from. You're creating a whole new timeline. And when you go, yeah, the back, whole, when you go back to the future, you're going back to your original timeline and you don't yes. see any changes, but there's now another arcing timeline that has its own existence on into infinity splitting off into hundreds of other possibilities. Yeah. And you're going into a whole Dragon Ball C, Dragon Ball Z sort of thing there too. Yeah. But, but I mean, that's, that's the thing. So, I mean, the, being a time traveler going into the past, if you don't know too much or you don't know the consequences, you can't reveal that future information to anybody in the past. How would you do it? Create a TV show that's going to sit there and reveal things that happened five to 10 years into the future of every episode without being completely, you know, obvious. Mm. And it'll be inconspicuous enough to where there might be somebody that's, you know, bright enough or see the patterns and things and sit there and say, maybe we should watch this. I mean, we've made plenty of movies where there are like these uh, brilliant autistic kids and stuff like that, that, pull apart these like pages and pages and numbers or puzzles and stuff mm. and sit there and go, Hey dad, <laughs> the end of the world is coming in like a year and a half. Right. <laughs> or that, uh, what was that one? I think it was Bruce Willis. Maybe uh, I can't think of the name of the movie. Um, Mercury something maybe. Oh, Mercury rising. Yeah the autistic kid solves a, a puzzle in a puzzle book. And they're like, we didn't think anybody would crack the code or find it. We buried yeah. it in a kid's book from 1922. <laughs> yeah. And it was like some government secrets or something like that. Yeah. It was like the nuclear launch codes or some shit. Yeah. Yep. That was, that was a good one. There's another one. Um, Oh, I can't remember what it was, but it was exactly what I said where they're, there was these print printouts of like all these numbers and stuff like that. And nope, nobody could figure it out. I think it had Nicholas cage in it. And some kid, one of the kids that was in the movie set there was like looking at it and goes, they're dates, they're dates. And they started like listing off like, you know, the whole like 12, eight 93 sort of date where it's right. just like the four to six di or six digits or whatever. And they're like, oh, shit. And they like start lining up the dates with things that happened during those years, the catastrophic events and shit like that. And it's like mm -hmm. it's you you would think somebody would see the puzzle within like, you know, the lines and stuff. But it's also like sometimes it's just not what you're thinking. Like like um, a great example, because I was just watching it today. The, the Lord, the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. Right. They're getting ready to go into the Mines of Moria this high level wizard that's been doing this for God knows how long Gandalf reads it off. And he's like, Oh, speak friend and enter. And he's like, Oh, well, how does they go? Well, how does it work? He's like, Oh, simple. You just say the password and you get in. It's obvious. <laughs> and yeah. he stands there for three hours trying every password he can think of. And it takes the little hobbit who's never left home to go. Hey, how do you say friend and Elvish? And it opens the door. 
It's yep. just like sometimes the answer at, you know, in hindsight was stupid, obvious, but you get so wrapped around the axle of what you, your the train of thought you're on that you'll never actually get there. And then when somebody solves it, you're like, how the hell did we not see it? Yep. You were looking too deep, man. Too deep. Yeah. Like the amount of times and I get made fun of occasionally at work um, until I end up being right. But um, something as simple as the nerds in the audience will probably get this, the computer nerds. Um, people will be wrapped around the actual kids solve this problem. I don't know why the computer's doing this thing. And I go, what's it doing? Have you tried doing an IP config flush DNS? That's not what it is. That can't possibly be what it is. That's not going to work. It's like, hey, it's one command. Try it. Just try it. Mm -hmm. They try it. It flushes the DNS cache. For those that don't know, when you type in google.com, your your computer, if it doesn't, it's never been to google.com yet it doesn't know what google.com is because everything is based on IP addresses, right? So your computer goes, hey, go talk to that DNS server, which is programmed into your computer when you plug in your Ethernet cable for DHCP, Dynamic Host Control Protocol, I believe it is. Uh, but anyway, it goes, your D, your computer says, I need to talk to this, this IP address, my DNS server, to learn what google.com is. So it goes over there. That server... If it has it, will answer. If it doesn't, it reaches to the next DNS and so on and so forth until it gets it. And it tells your computer Google is 8.8.8.8. So now it knows how to get there. It then saves that in your machine as www.google.com equals 8.8.8.8.8 or four eights. I think I did five. But anyway, so that's how computers you know, find out where to go. It's, it's almost like an Atlas, right? From back in the day, for those of us that remember those, if you want to know how to get from New York to Pennsylvania, you buy an Atlas and it tells you what road to take. Same kind of idea. Well, sometimes because IP addresses change and DHCP leases get stale and things like that, your computer will go, I know where this is. This website is 8.5.2.1 and it tries to go there. And now that that site is dot two or dot one colon 8080 because you can't get to it with a secure protocol. It has to be open, you know, whatever. It won't let you get out to access that site. And sometimes that happens with like your DCs and stuff like that. So your computer can't get to your network and you're not pulling pages. You're not getting an IP address or you have an IP address, which is was in this case, you have an IP address, you know, your default gateway, you have DNS servers. You can ping a known good IP address, but you can't get out anywhere. Well, why? Well, your DNS registry is all jacked up. It's, it's stale. It has bad information and the Atlas is 10 years old. Roads change, routes get moved. So you, if you flush that out and get a new one, you'd be surprised how often it fixes some weird stuff. So whenever something's not working and it's a connectivity problem, I say, hey, flush your DNS, uh, for, re, uh, release your lease and get a new one. Because now you'll have a brand new IP address. You have a brand new DNS registry. And maybe... That'll fix some things. It's not a guaranteed fix. It doesn't do everything. It's not the God button, but 
try it. And all these guys would rather go super down into the weeds, like the registry of the system and then pull up the switch configuration and the router configuration and, you know, ping the uh, domain controller or access the DNS server. And like, they're doing all this stuff, checking logs. And I'm like, did you try this simple thing? And then when the simple thing works, they go, why didn't we think of that? I'm like, cause you're so focused. Like you said, you're so focused that the problem must be in the weeds that you don't even bother to look left or right. Right. Yeah. A long tangent to say the same fucking thing you just said, but I, I just zoned out. I sit there and I worry. <laughs> no, no, no. I listen to everything. I just worry that, you know, I sit there and go, I didn't look porn up. Who looked porn up? Why isn't this working? <laughs> yeah. Which site did you go to? It must be the boy. I have a, I, I check my history. Nothing's popped up yet. Just remember, if anything happens to me, clear my search history, bro. You're going to have to rely on Shane for that. I can't do that. I'm too far away. <laughs> but you, you're an expert, so you know you can come over. You just do it digitally. Just delete all my stuff. Oh, just wipe you, my bro. phone completely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Zuckerberg already has it, but I'll do what I can. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, I just recently got back onto Facebook to see if I could like start sharing stuff on there again. It's not like I wasn't already on Facebook to some degree because I, right. I have Oculus and I have Instagram both owned by Facebook. So, right. Whatever. I might as well just use Facebook. They already own you, bro. Yeah. I'm a... F- no, I am a... I'm a strong, independent woman, okay? <laughs> All right. What's your next Who's Was it... Oh, was it mine? Uh, yeah, I just did Poe. Oh, right. okay. Yeah, we went on a pretty good tangent on yeah, that. Yeah, we did. <laughs> Uh, okay, so this is a scary story actually taking place in uh, Enfield, Illinois. It's called The Mystery of the Enfield Monster. Ooh. And this is also from allthatsinteresting.com. This is actually a pretty cool site. I was like messing around on it uh, over the weekend. One night in 1973, the two young McDaniel children of Enfield, Illinois, claimed to see a weird creature lurking in their yard and trying to get in the house. But Father Henry McDaniel chalked their creepy story up to the active imagination of childhood. However, he changed his mind later that night after being awoken by strange scratching noises. McDaniel grabbed a gun and a flashlight and peered outside his front door. There, between two rose bushes, he saw a creature that was almost like a human body, just as his kids had described. It had three legs on it, a short body, two little short arms, and two pink eyes as big as flashlights, he recounted to a reporter. McDaniel said he fired four shots and was sure he hit the creature at least once, causing it to make a hiss, much like a wildcat's, before it ran off toward a railway, railway embankment. McDaniel was stunned when he saw the monstrous beast jump 80 feet in three jumps before quickly running out of sight. The police found scratches on the door screen as well as footprints in the dirt near McDaniel's home that looked like that looked dog-like with six toe pads, yet no clues pointed to an unusual creature. 
McDaniel's sighting made the reading eagle, but it was clear most people didn't believe it was true. It didn't help that a 10-year-old neighbor faked his own eyewitness account of the beast, only to later admit that his testimony was a prank against McDaniel's. Uh, let's see. McDaniel reported two more sightings of the alleged beast to local cops, but he said he said they eventually threatened him with jail time because nobody believed what he saw had been real. But McDaniel was adamant and stood behind his scary true story. If they do find it, McDaniel said in an interview, they will find more than one and they won't be from this planet. I can tell you that. After McDaniel's public testimony about the unfilled monster, other eyewitness claims began to, re began to surface. Monster hunters swarmed the town, and at least five men were arrested after firing shots in the area and claiming to have photographed the creature. To this day, no explanation has been uncovered for the small town creepy story. Hmm. Let's see. If I can. Actually, show you this image here. All, like that stuff there's like do you remember uh scary stories to tell in the dark yeah it makes me think of the black dog i don't know if you remember that oh, particular story yes, I, do. I even remember the movie they made on it yeah um i don't i don't know like and then there's like the stories of like the rake and stuff like that i don't know if you've heard of the rake that was a creepy pasta no i don't think so let's see Send this right here. I'm gonna post these here in Discord. So this is the monster right here, the uh rendering of the monster. Okay. Where are you sending that? Uh, in the Discord that we were sending, like the articles we were doing last time, okay, uh, yep. information. I want to make sure I'm on the right spot. And this is an image. Oops. Yeah. An image of um, oh, his God. screen door. Jesus. <clears throat> For those of you that are going to be just listening to this, <clears throat> There's a massive tear in the screen door. Um, there's obviously like you can, it's kind of a small imagery in an older one, but you can see uh, fibers hanging down from a huge scratch in the central area that's been pulled down in a way towards the bottom left of the door. Um, and the threads like in between each spot are pretty, I mean, it, it looks like somebody took a big knife to it or something scratched the hell out of it. And then there's another one higher up that almost looks like if you're going to say a dog did this, like um, it's scratching its, it's paws on the bottom part that's ripped out and it's chewing the top part out. That, that upper, that upper hole, I think, I mean, it, it could have been him shooting at it, but yeah. then the, the, I think the shooting at it could have, depending on what he shot with, yeah, I don't know what kind of gun like he particularly had. Like a shotgun had. or something. Yeah. But yeah, everybody knows how the screens on screen doors have that uh, hatching into yeah. each other where it's like weaved, weaved in together. So back then it was probably, this was probably more, not so much metal, mm. but more of a weaved uh, 
kind of uh, almost like chicken wire, not chicken wire. No, uh, cheesecloth almost. Yeah, something like that. And so it's literally like, because all they were worried about was like keeping bugs and shit out. So not particularly weird animal creature things, but. So yeah, it looks like that the bottom like tear was just like mm-hmm. tore down, like like Carl said, just like uh, s- scratching down at it, at it, and it's just like frayed all around the edges of where it was, except for the sides where it looks like it was just ripped down. Hmm. Yeah, it definitely looks weird. The dog thing almost reminds me of. Um, I forget the. New, it's in New Mexico, I believe. Forget the year, but a woman, female farmer, uh, she had a like chicken farm. She, uh, for a long time, she would hear something outside, the chickens would go crazy. She'd run out there, and there'd be no signs of like forced entry, but there'd be a chicken dead on the inside of the pen and when she examined it it was it was dead but it had no blood left in it and there was a, a bite around the neck area and you could see blood from like where it was bit but there's no blood on the ground no blood in the animal and they started calling it a, it was a chupacabra attack or whatever mm-hmm. um, but they could never figure it out fast forward a little bit um a neighbor and back then in New Mexico, I'm sure it's still the same way. Your neighbors are pretty far away. The neighbor calls her and says, Hey, I just hit something. Bring your camera and come down here. I think it might be what you're looking for. Cause she claims that she had seen like seen it in the distance a little bit. So she goes down there. It is a completely hairless dog, but it, has like a very hunched over back like this does its eyes are a very strange hue. And she claims that they were red, but you know, the eyes didn't survive the accident and stuff. Um, but it, they said that when they analyzed the DNA of it, it was a cross between a coyote and another breed of wolf, but neither one of them are hairless and neither one of them have the, body shape that this thing had but the way the back of that creature once they put it up um because they like they taxidermied it or whatever so you could it's always permanent you can see what it looked like mm-hmm. the way it's back it was shaped is very similar to the picture that you sent yeah uh, it had four legs not two but just that hunched nature is very very similar Yeah, I'm looking at I'm looking chupacabra up. I uh, I know of it, and I always heard that it looked very coyote-ish. But like you went into more details of what it could look like, and it's uh, yeah, the hunched back because so, the back is more hunched towards the back end of the the chupacabra. Yeah, I just found. So, I'm sure you're looking at the same picture, but. No, I'm not looking at porn. <laughs> I told you not to. I told you not to uh, disturb me when I'm cleaning my room. Yeah, come on, man. Here you go. So this is the one that she stuffed. 
but you can see how like the back if you go from it's like where the tail would be mm. it goes yeah. so high up and then back down it's very hunchy i'm looking like the the top of the head next to the ears yeah those it almost looks like horns or something mm-hmm. very very small per- bone protrusions but yeah they said that was a mix of some uh Oh, it's from Texas, actually. But they said it was a cross between a coyote and a, like a, a, a long-haired wolf or something. I'm like, and let, maybe if it had, you know, um, but, a skin condition or something. Yeah, I mean, it would definitely have to have some something going on with it because coyotes aren't known to be hairless. No, like, no species I know of coyotes to be, you know, hairless. And anything that says long hair never has no hair. Right. And this is, um, so my stepdad, which is how I know about, um, where is it? Save image. There we go. Uh, how I know about chupacabras. He, as he put it, his words, not mine. He was fresh off the boat, Puerto Rican is how he would describe it to people. Um, his mother brought, she was born in Puerto Rico. He was born in Puerto Rico. And then she brought him to the States and he served in uh, Vietnam. This is what, and I just posted it in there. It says kind of a small picture, but I couldn't get the other one to, uh, save. Oh yeah. I was looking at that. Um, it supposedly has a phosphorescent, bright-colored spine like appendages that run from the body to from the back of the head all the way down its back. The spine's colors change cons- constantly from red to blue, yellow to green, orange to violet. They're covered by fine gray fur with dark. Some spots are darker than others. They have very strong feet with claws at the end. They're four to five feet tall, big slanted red eyes. Small holes for nostrils, a lipless mouth, no ears, only uh, auditive holes. They have very thin front arms with three-fingered hands with claws. So that is a rendition from September of 1995 that I read that from. And my stepdad claims that they were absolutely 100% real. Um, that they were a constant problem to the goats and the chickens down there. And he was terrified of them growing up and uh, of them growing when he was growing up. When they left Puerto Rico to come to the States, he said one of the driving reasons was that they started to see ones that had wings. And his family was too terrified of these and other things to continue living there. And he was terrified that they would be able to fly to the mainland eventually. Now, would that be closer to like the, uh, the Jersey devil? Uh, the Jersey devil is a lot stranger. Um, okay. If I remember correctly, because it has, yeah, it has the head of a goat, the short front legs, like a fucking T-Rex. Wings oh, like a yeah. bat and the hooves of a um, horse or some shit. Man, I, you know, it looks goofy as fuck. But if I ever saw something like that in real life, I wouldn't. I would not stick around. Yeah. 
like it's easy to laugh at the the Jersey Devil with how some people have like depicted it, but mm-hmm. yeah, I definitely wouldn't be like, oh, what's that? Let's let's take a look at that guy. Right. Yeah, I would, I would definitely just leave it the fuck alone. <laughs> Check this out. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Even even the fucking even the fucking Jersey Devil could fucking mask up. Yeah, I, I've seen that. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, um, there is a possible uh, animal that would explain the Jersey Devil completely. I'm trying to. Save this. There we go. I think it's a type of bat by the look of it. I'm going to upload this for you right now, and then I'll describe it to everybody that's not going to be able to see it. Um, but mm, okay. this is a hammerhead bat. So if you guys, for those that are listening to the podcast uh, in the morning, uh, look up the hammerhead bat. Uh, it The head definitely looks the same or very similar to the Jersey Devil. It does have bat-like wings because it's a, it's a bat. Uh, the body is very skinny, like the one depicted in the jer- typical Jersey Devil uh, thing. The ears are very similar as well. And I uh, can't really see the hind legs because it's the way it's curled up. But, I mean, it's that's a pretty good resemblance to me yeah no it's it's pretty close i I, i'm gonna but willing to bet you since it's a bat it's not gonna have hooves on it um right but if you see this thing flying through jersey over your head oh yeah because this bat this bat's no regular size bat this isn't gonna be like some little uh black bat from some fruit bat that flies down into your hair or anything like that no this is a big bastard this yeah this this boy is about as big as uh, average person's torso. Mm-hmm. Probably when if he, if he opens up his wings and his legs and he actually spreads out, he's he's about as big as an average man's torso. And there are species of bat um, that have a wingspan of six feet, and the hammerhead bat is close to that. So with its its wings wide open, it it can be. From tip to tip, almost as tall as I am, about six feet. That's, so this this is a big insane. bastard. Yeah. Like I can't even imagine like looking up and you just see something six feet from side to side flying above you. Like Jesus. Yeah, I mean the biggest difference that I could see anybody taking place of this is the Jersey Devil does have these front legs depicted on it, like a it's almost got like horse legs. Yeah. Except it's got little fingers phalanges at the end of those front legs. Which if you look at if you look at the hammerhead's wings on the front, it does have those little like fingers like a bat does at the end of the wings. Yeah. But it 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 doesn't have them coming out of the front like the Jersey Devil. So it's it doesn't it's not a perfect one for one, but it's pretty close. And and the longer neck. But no, you are right. If if somebody just saw this thing gliding across the the sky, it's like somebody anybody could mistake that for something different because nobody 
I I like the creepy stuff, but I've never seen this hammerhead bat before. Yeah. And I don't know if, you know, hammerhead bats are typical in Jersey, but. I don't know. That's a good question. It, I mean, it. Stranger things have accidentally stowed away during shipments and flown around. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And Jersey's right there. So. But the Jersey Devil is uh, definitely a weird one. Hammerhead bats are typically uh, New Guinea. Okay. Kenya. So cross cross seas. They are big boys, though. That's for sure. You, even when they're little, they're pretty big. Big old snout. All right. Uh, <laughs> what's, your, snout. what's your next one? All right. My next one is a mystery oh. that has been covered on a lot of different things. So you may be somewhat familiar with it. Um, but it's the, I might be butchering this, the Dyatlov Pass incident in 1959. Ooh. Yeah. Go. Yeah, please do. So the Soviet... Uh, let me ooh, let me get back to the right spot. On January twenty seventh, nineteen fifty nine, a group consisting of mostly students from Ural Polytechnic Institute, uh, totaling ten members in in total, um, were led by a twenty three year old named Ig- Igor Dyatlov, and most, if not all, were seasoned cross country and downhill skiers. And Igor, uh, as well as I think one of the main guides, if memory serves, uh, this was not their first expedition. They had done several expeditions. They did test runs. They were very experienced uh, in this area of the world. These were not rookies. They were very well trained and equipped for this sort of thing. Now, At that time of the year, a route through this mountain pass called the Gora Otorten Mountain in the northern part of the Soviet Zverdlovsk Oblast uh, is classified as a Category 3. That's a very, very risky category, the riskiest category, in fact. Uh, Temperatures were known to fall to as low as negative 30 degrees Celsius, which is negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit, which is roughly... 50 degrees below freezing. So pretty damn cold. Uh, On January 28th, one member of the expedition, Yuri Yudin, decided to turn back. He never saw the rest of the group ever again. So their expected return date to the departure point, which was the village of Vizay, came and went. They didn't come home. So they sent out a team to search for them. Again, they left on January 27th. On February 26th, the rescue team finally found the group's tent. The tent was badly damaged and on the slopes of Koyalot Sayaki, translated as Death Mountain, 20 kilometers or 12 and a half miles south of the group's actual destination. The group's belongings had all been left behind. Further down the mountain, Beneath an old Siberian cedar tree, they found two of their bodies only wearing socks and underwear. Three others, including that of the experienced Dyatlov, 
were found between the tree and the tent site, and they assumed that they had uh, succumbed to hypothermia while attempting to return to camp. Two months after all of that, the remaining four bodies were discovered in a ravine beneath a very thick layer of snow. Several of the deceased party members had very serious injuries, such as fractures to the chest and skull. Another important thing to note here is that for whatever reason, everyone was in the tent for nighttime. Makes sense. But for some reason, they woke up in the middle of the night, cut their way out of the tent from the inside and ran out into 30 below Celsius or negative 30 Celsius, negative 22 Fahrenheit, 50 degrees below in nothing but their socks and their underwear and ran for their lives. And no one knows why. Now, Soviet authorities investigated uh, the incident to determine what the co- what caused this whole thing and what the cause of death was. Three months into the investigation, they conclude the investigation stating, quote, a compelling natural force, end quote, had caused the death of the hikers. The events, because nobody actually survived, are completely unknown. Now, there's a lot of theories out there. There are the main theory is that they died by an avalanche, but it doesn't explain some of the injuries. Some of the injuries just don't make sense as far as like how much damage was done to the bodies. Also, if there was, these were experienced folks. So they knew what to look for in regards to this kind of thing. Also, if the winds had been picking up, according to experts, the safest thing for them to have done, which again, they would know because they've been out there and they're experienced in this region, would have been to cut, I believe, southeast to the forest to get some natural um, wind stop, right, from the trees and whatnot, and to be up against the hillside that's down in that ravine. So you'd have trees on one side, you'd have the mountain on the other, and you could orientate your orient your tent in such a way that you would have very little uh, wind comparatively, right? Instead, these experienced folks set up right on the side of the mountain where the wind just wouldn't be sated at all. So it's a very strange situation. And then again, they're cutting their way out of the tent with no clothes. If it's an avalanche, you'd think they would have, you know, scooped their clothes up or something, but they would know that in that situation, like you're kind of fucked either way. So you may as well put something on quick to try and survive. But I don't know. The whole thing's weird. Um, the injuries are very strange. They've the avalanche theory doesn't hold up to professional um, experts. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> the other ones are that there was a military experiment going on or military exercises by the Soviet Union. Um, and as such, they murdered 
the group because they weren't supposed to be there. Um, there's one uh, saying aliens did it. And of course, the murderous Yeti attacked them in their tent. And the investigators were mistaken that the tent was cut open from the inside. It was ripped open from the outside. And this murderous Yeti bashed in their chests and made them run off into the woods with no clothes on. Well, so like the, the no clothes thing makes sense to me because, um, they're, they're experienced. They're trying to stay warm. And when you are encumbered with that, that low, low degreeage like that, it seems to be, counterproductive but when you actually like cuddle up next to another body's skin to skin you actually warm each other up much better oh, yeah. than when the fact that they, they had no clothes in the tent 100 yeah. percent agree with you 100 yeah. percent. why they would cut open the tent destroying mm-hmm. the only shelter they had and run off into the night in 50 below freezing temperatures with high winds doesn't make Absolutely. any sense. Yeah, it, it's it's such a mind-boggling thing, and it's been mind-boggling for like ever. They've made a video game of this. Like they've, oh man, it's now one other theory I didn't cover because it was on, um, but it was on uh, the unexplained with William Shatter. I know I talk about it a lot, um, <laughs> but the theory is that because of how the wind goes through that region of the world it creates a very low decibel, but high frequency noise Mm -hmm. that if you are exposed to it for long periods of time, it will literally drive you insane. So we're going to go with, I mean, there's a theory of basically the lavender town syndrome sort of thing going on. Yeah. Like these, these experienced people, were subjected to this noise for so long that they basically went crazy and murdered each other. Mm-hmm. Different tones setting up uh, different pathways in your brain. There's a there's a lot of research done on like sound patterns and sound uh, mm-hmm. the decibels at which sounds play up. They do the whole like the singing bowl, the singing bowl that people use to meditate. I mean, that's at a certain frequency when you do it right. Yep. Yeah, and the United States military, through DARPA, um, have experimented with a bunch of less than lethal, they call it, uh, technologies. One mm-hmm. is basically a micro, a, a very powerful microwave that when it hits your body, because we're mostly made of water, it starts moving those molecules around. Mm. And it has different settings for how fast it's going to move your molecules. But basically, your fight or flight uh mechanism well really your flight mechanism i should say because you're not going to get angry enough to try to destroy the machine but um when you're hit by this invisible matter your body everything in your body immediately gets hot and uncomfortable and the only thing you want to do is move and it is completely involuntary you will move out of the way of the beam yeah it just forces you out the other one we have plays a very specific um, frequency 
at a very specific volume and decibel and all this stuff so that as soon as it hits you, you're, it, it's like your head is going to explode. And you want to run away. From, it does basically the same thing. You just you, It's an auditory deterrent. You just immediately get away from it. Mm-hmm. They've also, uh, through now unclassified documents, uh, through the Freedom of Information Act, we have discovered that uh, at various points throughout our history, DARPA has blasted sound waves and some that contained uh, subliminal audio recording into unsuspecting neighborhoods to see what would happen. Uh, one of the more famous ones, I believe, was in San Francisco. San Francisco. They blasted a predominantly gay community because at the time um, that was the target audience for if you want to do fucked up shit. Um, so they blasted this technology at the complex, uh, at the community, and the police were flooded with phone calls of people claiming that they could hear people in their apartment or their home, but they couldn't find them. And they wanted the police there to help them search the home. Uh, Others claiming that like schizophrenic level stuff of like not trying to make light of schizophrenia or anything, but uh, where they would say, you know, I'm hearing voices, but I'm not crazy. I know they're there. And when I bring people over while I'm experiencing it, they experience it too, which is a very odd part of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And investigations came and went as more and more attention was being brought to it. DARPA canceled the project at that location and moved it elsewhere and never told anybody until it became declassified and obtained through the freedom of information act. Yeah. uh, Just a side note, uh, DARPA government don't come after us. We're harmless. Just, you know, we're talking. (laughs) Yeah. Dear DARPA. (laughs) Dear DARPA. Leave us alone. Yeah. We're, we're not, saying you're bad now we're just saying that was kind of messed up yeah i mean realistically we're just saying you guys did some fucked up shit in the past just like anybody else and we all know that the reason it's declassified is everybody that did it is now dead so from old age natural causes so we're saying they were bad not you right 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 calm down sybil Yeah, I poked the bear a little. A little bit, a little bit. Um, Usually the one that we poke is, you know, in the bed next to us. My bear is anyway. (laughs) Here, check this out. Um, I don't know if you've already found these before. So this is the route that they took. The same uh, Discord channel. Yep. This is kind of an approximation of how things were found. I mean, that's a, that's a 2000, I mean, that's a huge span of land right there. Mm -hmm. It hasn't posted yet. I don't know. I mean, what you said was, I feel like probably the best 
ideal. Like, there's there's just so much that could have gone wrong in that, but there's so much stuff in there that did go wrong that is so unexplainable. Yeah. Oh, whoops. Uh, hold on. Here we go. I forgot to hit enter. Sorry. That'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> it, it happens to me all the time playing D and D in Discord. I'll be like, "Oh, here's the all the things you guys are fighting." They're like, "Are you gonna post it?" I'm like, "Fuck!" Didn't hit enter. So yeah, that's the path. That's the pass that they took. The trail. The path. The can't think of what I actually said. Yeah, that's their expedition path. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's there. You go. Yeah, and it, it's crazy. Like, that is such a huge way. I mean, look where look where the pass, like, this is the pass right there. You see that? Yeah, I'm, seeing, I'm looking at the second the, one. The body's found there, the footprint's found over here, and the tent found over there. It's like, what? Yeah, and for those of you that can't see this, I'm going to use um, my coaster as a reference using the handy guide you got to me. So from there to there is 500 meters. So the tent is just under 500 meters away from the footprints they find in the snow. Those footprints are almost a thousand meters from where the bodies are actually found. And where the bodies are found is again, almost another thousand meters from where they were supposed to be. Like that's in, that's insane. That's insane. And yeah. <laughs> and remember, this is negative fifty degrees, or not negative fifty. Fifty degrees below zero, below freezing, with extremely high winds. And we're saying that they traveled at least a thousand meters before they're in the zone where the bodies are found. Yep. With no clothes. That's a key factor. Like, with that amount of wind and everything, you would almost certainly collapse, if not die, from the exposure before you got there. Man. Yeah. And again, some of the damage to, like, I didn't go over the damage too much, but supposedly, because we, you know, never... The, the, it was the Soviet Union. You're never going to get to see the bodies. But supposedly, the uh, like chest cavities were smashed. The how some of their skulls were smashed, and supposedly, according to one report, the heart was removed from one of the bodies. Mm-hmm. The, the heart. Just... But again, this is a very remote region and it took them over about two months to actually find everything. So it is possible that scavengers, you know, ate parts of the body or, or, you know, the chest cavity was already damaged from whatever happened. And then something came over and took the heart out. Yeah. I was actually going to ask that. Did it describe as to how the heart was taken out? Was the chest ripped open? Was it? unclear from uh, all the reports I could find. Yeah. But again, it's the Soviet. This is all a lot of what we know is coming from the Soviet union. That was so tight lipped at the time that there's the, 
the pieces of the puzzle necessary to solve this mystery are probably buried in a KGB basement somewhere. That's true. So anybody that has any ties to uh, uh, one of our most current past presidents, get a hold of them and go through the emails. Let us know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. Well, they might be in those uh, FBI, the boxes the FBI are picking up right now. Yeah, that that's what I'm talking about. And so, you know, if anybody cares about the dad, we we don't want to know about all the other stuff right now. We just want to know about this right now. <laughs> and aliens, bro. Aliens. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. There's a lot of stuff that we have the desire to find the answers to. Mm-hmm. All right, bro. What's your next one? Or is it on me? No, it's not. Uh, you'd, you'd know. You just did the pass. Okay, this one, this one's one of the ones I was talking about that has that whole like could happen to me sort of situation. Okay. Well, not anymore because apparently they removed it. But um, there's a there was a deadly phone number before at some. Oh point. yes. There's also from all that's interesting dot com. Yeah, I almost used this <clears throat> one myself. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah. <laughs> so some superstitions hold that certain numbers are bad luck. You know, thirteen seven. One is the loneliest number. One cell phone number issued by a Bulgarian mobile phone company in particular actually seems to be connected to the deaths of at least three people, all of whom had used the same phone number before their ominous deaths. Whether coincidence or not, the unlucky cell phone number 0888888888 has since become synonymous with deadly bad luck. The first victim, in fact, was the former CEO of the mobile phone company, Mobitel, named Vladimir Grashnov. He died of cancer at the age of 48 in 2001. Shortly after receiving the number from his former company, his former company, rumors suggest the real cause of Grashnov's death was that he was being slowly poisoned by a competitor. Two years later, the alleged curse hit the next victim of the unlucky mobile number, Konstantin Dimitrov. Dimitrov, 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 a Bulgarian mafia boss gunned down while having dinner with his model girlfriend was killed at the age of 31. Investigators suspect it was a hit job by a rival drug boss. The third and final victim to hold the ill-fated number was Konstantin Dishliv, who was shot to death while sitting down at an Indian restaurant in 2005. Dishleev, like the previous owner of the mobile phone number, was engaged with the underground criminal world. He was known as a crooked businessman who operated a secret drug trafficking operation. Hmm. It might strike an observer of this true story, true scary story that these high-profile victims would likely have died with or without the number, particularly those who were entangled in drug trafficking. But the fact that all three men died within a five-year period was enough for the mobile phone company to pull the number out of circulation, yet the creepy stories of the deadly number live on to this day. So, I mean, it's it's no, it's no the ring. It's not like, you're going to die in seven days sort of deal, but my they question, all died within a, a period of, like, within a five-year period. My question is, what if I'm just putting it out there. What if the real reason is there was a vigilante that worked at the mobile phone company that caught the CEO doing shady shit and then found out that that same number was given to 
mafia members. And he's like, well, fuck, I already have access to the phone, the phone number, and then the phone, and just used it to track them and then killed them. And then, you know, he never got caught because nobody else used the phone number. So that that's a good that's a good analogy too. I mean, like, or well, not analogy, observation. What if what if somebody was doing something like that and was using the phone number to actually track? Because you know we all know mobile phone companies track everybody that has a cell phone. Mm-hmm. So why not? It's an easy number to track. Zero a a a a a a a a eight. It's like how how much easier can you get? <laughs> yeah. So what if there was a vigilante that was doing that? Because I mean, there were all three people were. Pro- well, the first guy, I mean, he he was the head of a mobile company. So why could why? I, I'm willing to bet you he was corrupt at some degree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's let's and be then, honest here. Let's be honest. And then, the, here. <laughs> and then the two entangled in you know drug trafficking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'd want those people off the streets. I mean, you know, if they go to court, especially back in those days, they there wouldn't be anything done about it. They had enough money. Yep. They were mafia bosses. And, and even these days, if you got enough money. Right. But shit, mafia bosses don't even go to jail anymore. <laughs> no, they're politicians now. Yep. Oh, yeah. That, that's my big conspiracy theory hill I'll die on is uh, the mafia didn't go away. Like, and people are like, oh, well, we would know if the mafia was operating today. Here's Here's my theory, right? If you look at the mafia at its heyday, its height, what did they do? They took all their criminal money. They bribed politicians, judges, cops, you name it. They had them all in their pocket. When, uh, who was it, Hoover? Um, Started going heavy after the mob, right? They had all those political contacts in such a dire state that all they had to do was flip on them. They would end up, some of them would have the, some of the mafia guys could have got immunity just from what they knew about these people. So mm-hmm. none of the political leaders go down very few comparatively to the entire structure of the big bosses go down. And the biggest one they get Gotti was for income tax evasion. They couldn't even get him on fucking mob shit. But after those big, big arrests from a few big names, right? The entire structure of the mafia just fizzled and fell apart and everybody went their separate ways, took the money and run. Or, which is my theory, they already had those political contacts and their money was already laundered. So how easy would it have been for those mafia members to put on a brand new suit, put on a little American flag lapel pin on the, on the chest there and use that money to campaign, to get into office and use that money to bribe the right people to make sure that they got it. I mean, realistically, they didn't even really have to bribe because you know how many of those places, how many store owners and communities that they were protecting, Yeah, you know, bunny ears around protecting, so they're already got all these people under their thumb. Of course, they're going to vote for the person that's protecting them. Right. And think about it. Eh? How much easier would it be for me to protect you if I own the whole city? Yeah. Right. Right. That's my horrible impression. But 
you know, that's my theory. And it makes a lot more sense to me than, Hey, we arrested three guys in the whole, we've broken the entire syndicate. Yeah. Like that doesn't make a lick of sense to me. And then not to be that guy. No, come on, be that guy. Be that guy. I know that the mafia is stereotypically always perceived as Italian, right? And the stereotype for Italian people is that their last names end in a vowel. I don't mean to be stereotypical at all, but look at the state of New York. Every single governor we've had, with the exception of uh, Kathy Hochul so far, has been caught being corrupt to the bone. And we have a very high, like population-wise, we do have a large uh, Italian descent population, right? Italian ancestry. So the Italian connection may just be coincidence based on the population, right? Population Mm -hmm. density for Italians is higher in New York, is uh, on the higher end in New York, and certain towns in New York have even higher on top of that, right? So it could be coincidence there, but the number of uh, governors we've had that are Italian and every single governor we have being corrupt and the chance that mafia members entered into the political spectrum and New York had a heavy mob influence, like maybe there's something there. Maybe. I mean, it's very, it's very, it's possible. It's very possible. It just, in in my mind, I mean, it just makes more sense than, you know, you bust a handful of people and you somehow take down a multinational, international, coast-to-coast wide operation overnight. It It doesn't make a lick of sense. It's crazy to think that, you know, I don't know why it was crazy for me to think about this, but... I mean, all this, this with the phone number happened over in Bulgaria, basically. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, they're talking about mob bosses just the way we we talk about our mob bosses. It's it's insane. That that's just something that's still continued on even today. Well, like the two oldest professions in the book are prostitution and extortion to an extent, right? So that's true. If you have like the, it's a common trope in uh fantasy and even some sci-fi but it's a common trope because of how true it is and that's the aspect of a the the people that benefit the most from a siege are the thieves that are already in the castle right so yeah the thieves already have a network they've already got an established thing where they rob from people they sell it to the fences they know who's got what they have deals made with the guy that has grain to give it to this guy so they can get the metal that they need to give to the smith to get the weapons they need. Like they have all this stuff already worked out. The enemy comes in. They know the enemy's coming because back then it's not like today where they just drop in with parachutes. Like it takes them forever and a day to get there and you know they're coming. You got reports coming in from all over the place. So these thieves will start stockpiling food, water, rations. Uh, weapons, ammunition, the things that are going to be needed the most in a siege, medicine, right? Then when the Mm -hmm. siege starts, they sit back, wait for stuff to start dwindling down resource-wise. When people start to panic, 
or the crowns especially starts to panic, they go, hey, I got just what you need, but it's going to fucking cost you. Yeah. And they make out like bandits to a point where during after some sieges that were successfully defended, they had made so much wealth that they were basically now the crown owed them so much money that they became lords overnight. Like Lord, uh, Gaylord. Yeah. But it it's insane, but it's kind of the human condition too. Yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. And speaking of conditions and experiments and the human and all this crazy DARPA shit. Uh, I got another one for Talk you. Talk to me. Talk to me. 1943. Allegedly, in the fall of 1943, a U.S. Navy destroyer was made invisible and teleported from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Norfolk, Virginia. Oh. Uh, this incident became known as the Philadelphia Experiment. So, records in the archives branch of the Naval History and Heritage Command have been repeatedly searched, but no documents have been located which confirm this event or any interest by the Navy in attempting such an achievement. It bears to note, however, that the DOD, the Department of Defense, has specific agencies within each branch of the military and an overarching uh, system in place to test and design experimental technologies that are not under the purview, even if they're under a certain department. So the Department of the Navy, for example, may have a branch that does this sort of research, but that research center can have experiments or uh, materials that are not under the purview of the Department of the Navy, even though they are directly underneath that department. So that bears noting, right? Mm-hmm. Because just because they don't have a record of it doesn't mean that it did not happen. It just means that even though it was a Navy test, the Navy may not have had direct control over the test. Yeah, not by any means. So the ship involved in the experiment was supposedly the USS Eldridge. The archives have reviewed... This is directly from the history naval... um, The archives branch of Naval History and Heritage... I'm reading this from this government website. So uh, the ship involved was supposedly the USS Eldridge. The archives going to be going to be hitching the government all over us, man. Hmm. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but <laughs> I'm, it's on their website. I'm reading what they're saying. Uh, the archives have reviewed the deck log and the war diary from the Eldridge's commissioning on 27 August 1943 at the New York Navy Yard through December of 1943. The following descriptions of the Eldridge activities are summarized from the ship's war war diary. After they commissioned the ship, they remained in New York and Long Island Sound until 16 September when it sailed to Bermuda. From 18 September, the ship was in the vicinity of Bermuda, undergoing training and set trials until 15 October when the Eldridge left in a convoy for New York where the convoy entered on 18 October. The Eldridge remained in New York Harbor until 1 November when it was part of an escort for the convoy UGS-23 of the New York section. On 2 November, the convoy entered the Naval Operating Base of Norfolk. On November 3rd, they left for Casablanca and arrived on 22 November. 
On 29 November, the Eldridge left as one of the escorts for that uh, convoy GUS-22 and arrived on 17 December in New York Harbor. It remained stationed there for training until 31 December when it steamed to Norfolk with four other ships. During this time, Eldridge was never in Philadelphia. Now, a copy of the World War II action report and war diary coverage, including the deck log and microfilm, uh, is held by the National Archive. Now, supposedly, the ship of a merchant crew, SS Andrew, uh, uh, Forsooth, observed the arrival via teleportation of the Eldridge into the Norfolk area. Their movement report cards are in the 10th Fleet Records in the custody of Modern Mundadoda, which was custody of the actual report diaries in World War II, blah, 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 blah. Uh, the lists all of their information, yada, yada, yada. A lot of blah, blah, buzz and yada, yada, yada. Because it's just like, it's, it's stuff I don't want to read out, like Convoy USG 15, 1943, August 16. Oh, okay. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's not pertinent information. Um, gotcha. The Office of Naval Research, ONR, has stated that the use of force fields to make a ship or her crew invisible does not conform to known laws of physics. They also claim that Albert Einstein's unified field theory was never completed. And during 1933 to 1944, Einstein was a part-time consultant with the Navy's Bureau of Ordnance, undertaking theoretical, theoretical research on explosives and explosions. However, there is no indication that Einstein was involved in research relevant to invisibility or teleportation. Uh, the Philadelphia experiment has also been called Project Rainbow, mm-hmm. which was to try to make things invisible. Now, that the, uh, you know, toe the line story has been told. Uh, so you're, you're, people don't think we're just spouting what we find on stuff. Like we, this is, that's the official uh, information, right? Uh, let's see. Trying to actually pull up. Well, I mean, we had to find the, the stories from somewhere. Yeah. So. So on. Uh, one day in 1943, at the Philadelphia Navy Yard, a USS Eldridge, fully manned destroyer escort, vanished into a green fog. Within seconds, that same vessel appeared in Norfolk, Virginia, and then seconds later reappeared in Philadelphia. Uh, for 36 years, officials have, have denied it. They have denied any experimentation to render matter invisible and denied that the experiment was actually true. Um, According to uh, witness testimony, however, when the Eldridge reappeared in Philadelphia, they were tasked with uh, embarking onto the Eldridge and getting personnel off of the Eldridge. According to witness reports from that portion of this experiment, when they entered the vessel, 
there were some survivors that were later discharged as mentally unfit to continue duty, which is strange in and of itself. Uh, but they claim that they were ranting and raving about things they saw or, you know, the distortion field caused them to go crazy, all this stuff. Others were fused with the metal. Like they were, there was a wall of the ship and the person's body was perfectly bisected by the wall. Half their body was on one side, half their body was on the other. And they were still alive, screaming bloody murder. Some fucking insane man. The thought process there was that as you're moving through time and space, um, things get a little shifty, right? So kind of like in D and D, if you go ethereal and which basically makes you kind of like a ghost, you can go through objects as if it's difficult terrain, which means you double your, it takes twice as much movement to get through. Cause it's kind of hard to phase through things. Mm-hmm. And if you get stuck in the middle of it, you take force damage and are shunted out of it. So it's kind of like that whole idea, right? But in real life, when that happens, two things can't occupy the same space at the same time, right? So if you were to take, say, an apple and you wanted to teleport the apple from this space to that space, as soon as you teleport it, if something else is in the space you're sending it to, you will have a collision, obviously, right? Now, same idea. But now we're talking about the seeds inside the apple. Those seeds are in a nice little safe pocket. When that apple is teleported through space and time, it's not just the apple. It's everything that apple is carrying. So now the seeds are coming along with the ride, right? As they're being moved through time and space, there is a chance that the things that are inside, which are a separate entity, may shift their position slightly. And once they reappear, because they're basically traveling separately. So like in a car, when you're driving, you are being trans, you're transporting with the car at the same rate and speed. When you're teleporting, basically the vehicle is teleported. Anything that is bolted to the vehicle is teleported with that all because it's one solid matter, right? That solid matter is teleported. Anything else, i.e. human beings, are teleported separately because they're separate matter. Then at the far end, that vessel comes back into existence and then the people are placed back where they, in theory, back where they were. But because things are moving separately and you're in the ocean, so the thing is rocking back and forth as well, its position, even in only a few seconds, is different than when it was transported in a different, you know, area where you're at a different sea level, different wave patterns, all these things. So the idea is the ship teleported, the humans teleported, and the position that was safe was now no longer safe, and they ended up being fused with metal and other horrible things. Supposedly when people do research on this, they find scientific researcher of uh, a scientific researcher that was designated as enlisted as being part of this project was found mysteriously dead under very strange circumstances after the reports of this, um, 
incident took place, uh, identities seem to be hidden. Somebody's named as a, a witness or named as part of this program. They start digging into who that person is and anything after their name being named in a report, there's nothing. They just disappear or a document is referenced like, Oh, for more information, see, you know, uh, form Bravo Delta one in subsection C, but that document doesn't exist. It's also interesting to note that this ship, according to the official record that I read, was tasked with going to the Bermuda Triangle area and all of the weird shit that coincides with that area of the world. It's a very strange thing. And also, we've, as I've read uh, in that report from the government, no uh, teleportation stuff has been uh, experimented with and no trying to turn things invisible has been experimented with. Well, well no. Here's the issue I have with that. If you look this up on your own, you'll find it as well. But there is a cloak that we have made that if you put it around your body, you look like a guy in a cloak. However, if somebody looks at you through a rifle scope because of how rifle scopes are made, you will appear invisible because it's basically reflecting everything that's around you off of that coat or cloak. So it, it's when you look through a scope at that person, you can't see them. It's a very weird optical illusion, but it works. That is experimenting with making a human being invisible to a degree. Right. So it's just refracting light. Right. right? We also okay. have yeah. a tank in an airplane that has a very specialized set of cameras on it and very specialized panels. Those cameras take a 360 degree picture of everything that's around that vehicle. It is then panel for panel, uh, basically copy pasted onto those panels in the mm. direction of where that should be. So if you're up in the clouds, every cloud around you is, is perfectly captured the sky around you is perfectly captured and mirrored onto those panels. So if you're looking at it, you look like it looks like you're looking at the sky. A good way to, to represent this is in the Marvel movies with the helicarriers when they turn cloaking mode on and you see that it's just reflecting everything that's around it. That's the same idea. I mean, it's very science fictiony how it's basically just, you can't see anything at all. Um, but it's the same idea. You're projecting anything that's around you shot for shot all the way around this vehicle. We can do that with a tank as well. Um, there's also a subset to that system where the tank will drive up to something that's stupid hot. Like you're in the middle of a desert. You're the same. Your tank is roughly the size of this giant dumpster. You can pull up next to the dumpster the dumpster dumpster is white hot from sitting in the desert heat. You take a picture of that in thermal, which is usually depicted as white equals hot or black equals hot. So if you're in white mm -hmm. hot mode, anything that's hot will appear white. Everything that is cooler than that thing is going to be represented in different shades of white as it gets. Um, if it's hot, 
And the colder it is, the darker the color gets until it's completely black for something that's cold. With black hot, it's the opposite. Black is hot, white is cold. It's just depending on, you know, what makes it easy for you to see with your eyes. Everybody's eyes are a little different. I prefer white hot personally. So you take a picture of that thing. You activate the panels. Every panel on the tank will be programmed with a different level of heat until it appears to be the exact same as the object you took a picture of, i.e. in this case, the dumpster. So if anybody is looking through the desert with thermal, um, uh, a thermal scope and they see your tank, they will not see a tank. They will see a dumpster. So for them to say that there's no experimentation in uh, masking invisibility or teleportation doesn't seem to be exactly accurate. Also, what were those? Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to ask if those uh, denials were made back in 1943 during the experimentation. Are those recent denials? This uh, publication that I read from is 2017. Oh, okay. So it's also interesting to note that there have been experiments privately and privately funded um, in the private sector as well as funded through government techniques and government agencies to attempt uh, time travel and teleportation. We have successfully, and I say we as a species of human beings, right? Um, But we have successfully teleported um, electrons and molecules from one place to another. So to say that we're not experimenting in teleportation is a flat out, falsehood we are um we've also been experimenting with sending uh photons i believe or small shit really small stuff whether it's a molecule a photon a beam whatever the fuck these tiny tiny things that you can you can't see with the naked eye uh sending them back in time they have successfully uh, the last time i checked sent it back about 10 seconds which is still pretty cool Uh, They've been able to, they did the calculations. They've been able to prove that it did in fact go back in time, 10 seconds. How did they prove that? I have no idea. It's way above my head. I've read the paper 15 times and I can't make heads or tails out of it. It's very, very scientific and it's breaks my brain. Um, I was going to say, because if you send it back 10 seconds ago, how do you know you sent it back 10 seconds ago when you already had it 10 seconds ago? Yes. I, I completely understand where your head is. Unless you have two, so ten seconds ago you only had one. So ten seconds later, you send another. You send it back ten seconds ago. Ten seconds ago, now you have two. So it's very. Even that hurts my brain. They show the math, and I was reading the article, and it showed the math, and I was like, I don't even know what that. That's math. That does not look like math. That looks like fucking Egyptian hieroglyphics compared to the math I know. Um, I'm not a physicist. Okay. (laughs) Right. They do show the math and everything. They send it back like 10 seconds. The interesting thing outside of that, which is interesting in and of itself, they attempted to make a collision. So they, they have this thing, this molecule particle, whatever 
They're mm-hmm. fucking, we're fucking around, man. I know it. We have it right here and now. It's at eleven twenty-one Eastern Standard Time. It's right here. They send it back ten seconds, so they know that at this moment in time, right now, there is a molecule that exists at this Y position because we've already sent our X position back to that Y position. So we know it's there, right? So they do this thing where they do a rapid fire and they do all the math. And basically they send it like 10 seconds back in time to a Y position, nine seconds back in time to the same Y position, eight seconds back in time to the same Y position, all the way to current in an attempt to get these things to collide. Right? Cause in theory, if you're on the corner of J and main street and I send you back in time to the corner of J and main street, 10 seconds ago, nine seconds ago, eight seconds ago, seven seconds ago, one of the 10 copies of you are going to slam into one of the copies of you. Right. Right. There'd be a collision like you're saying. Yeah. So that's basically what they tried to do. No matter how they did the math, they triple quadruple quintental fucking check this math over and over and over again. Every time they did it, the X molecule proton, whatever would go to the Y position on the first time. Then it would go to Y plus one, Y minus one, Y plus two, Y minus two. It would be everywhere around very close to that position, but it would never allow a collision. Something stopped these scientists from making a collision at that smallest of scales. And they have no idea what it is. The it's the, it's the speed force, man. The theory is that time, the space-time continuum itself and our timeline and our dimensions and however all that works, there's something about that whole thing that's almost like a mechanism and it doesn't allow for collisions because elisions would basically create like the grandfather paradox where if you create a collision, right? The thing that's here now would be back in time, but it's previous back in time self would be destroyed by the collision, which then would make it impossible for the present day thing to even exist, to be able to go back in time in the first place. Right? So it causes this huge paradox that, ultimately is an unsolvable equation. Like you can get as granular as you like with it. At some point you're going to go, it can't be solved. And if that happened in the true time space continuum, as we know it, or as we theorize about it, it would unravel everything. So somehow this mechanism has a mechanism in place or this, this uh the space time continuum has a mechanism in place that if if uh material x is sent to position y back in back or forward in time and an identical thing is put to the same position offset by y minus y plus but how does it know <laughs> like the whole thing is so mind blowing so is it is it something there that is causing it to not happen or 
is another person, probably the person that they're trying to have collide, coming back from the future to that moment and changing that one, that one degree, that one like coordinate coordinate on the on the Y. Are they changing it last second before they try and make that change? So it always like ends up around that, you know, like you said, the mm-hmm. the natural Y point. Or is there a secret agency hidden away, protected from the downfalls of time, sitting in a bubble universe at a micro scale, watching everything at every moment in time and able to detect every possible permutation that would destroy the space time continuum as we know it? That comes in and stops it from happening. Or dun, dun, dun. are we are we the bubble universe? Or and there are others watching over us from above, not God. Or scientists. There is one theory that is very popular with scientists right now that would readily and handedly explain this whole thing. We are in a simulation. Therefore the people that created the simulation said, what if they got to the point scientifically or went back and fixed the code because they saw us getting ready to do it. Um, factored in the Holy gra- shit. grant factored in this grandfather paradox or a scene that we, Oh, they're starting to fuck with time travel. We need to make sure we got this down pat so that it's, it's just a script running on the server that is running our simulation that says if anything is sent from this time great date time group to a date time group in the past at the exact same position that it existed in that moment in the past offset by one, two, three, whatever. It'd be very easy to script for a program to do that. I just, I just had deja vu when you brought that up. That was really weird. Really, really weird. Um, I don't. I don't like the idea of there being a simulation. I don't like that idea. Like, it makes so honest, much sense, though. Yeah. Well, that's why I don't like it because <laughs> it makes too much sense, and the fact that it makes too much sense, and so many people are denying, like, even like contemplating it, and the fact that. You know, everybody sits there and uses the matrix Mm -hmm. as this like this point of like discussion with it and everything. It doesn't have to be that abstract. It doesn't need to be that fucking insanely like thought out plot points or anything like that. It just needs to be like us sitting in a fucking chair, wasting away, sitting there with something strapped to our head, making us see this stuff. We don't have to be batteries for machines. It doesn't even have to go that far, though. That's the thing. So we, you and I right now. Okay. Could actually be ones and zeros on a computer board, on a hard drive, on an SSD or some fucking blood based storage device, whatever. Whatever the case is, right? Whatever the medium is, we could just be ones and zeros on a medium right now. Programmed to have artificial intelligence programmed to such a finite level that we think we're real and we act in accordance with what we will we our five senses give us which is just computer inform it's just computer data it's just ones and zeros coming in 
And our program is designed to intake all of those things and spit out output, input, output, input, output all day long. So we're what? We're just the Sims. But a very specific reason for the Sims. There's got to be a specific reason that they did this, right? So no, no, not necessarily. It doesn't have to not be, necessarily. No, but here's my two cents on it. it kind of makes sense in my head anyway. Right. So imagine us. Imagine we are 100 percent real. OK, everyone on this planet is real. There's no simulation yet, right? At some point, technologically speaking, we will be able to create the kind of simulation that I'm talking about. A closed system with, let's just say 10 to make it easy to figure, to wrap our heads around. With 10 NPCs with superb AI that believe they're real, that carry on every single day, One person's the grocer, one person's the barber, one person is the cab driver, et cetera, et cetera, right? In this closed system, they believe they're in a small town USA and they know everything that we know right now except for how to make simulations work. And they're a little bit technologically inferior to where we are at this moment so that they don't realize that they're in a simulation, right? Mm -hmm. And we set a parameter. We say, what would happen if the general public found out aliens are 100% real, they visited us, all this crazy stuff, and that they're coming tomorrow to take over the planet? That's the hypothesis we're trying to solve. They can expose those 10 AI NPCs that have memories that think that they've been alive for 32 years when they've been alive for 10 minutes that have all those memories programmed in and have all these thoughts and believe they're real and know everything about the current state of America and geopolitics and all these things and just trigger aliens are real and see what happens so that you can anticipate future events. We could even use it for realistic uh, climate change models, right? We can say, what if human beings keep increasing the carbon level by 1% every year from the year 2010 to 2030. What is our planet going to look like in 2080? We can create that simulation. We can put it on fast forward and, and watch a year's worth of time progress in the span of 10 minutes over and over again and see what's going to happen with climate change. It has very real implications that could very much help our culture. <laughs> Bless you. Excuse me. That could very well help our entire, all of humanity, right? So, with that in mind, think about a highly advanced civilization, maybe even humans. Years, years, years more advanced than we are. Running a simulation to relearn our own history. What I mean by that is we know just enough to program it. We know what human beings are like. We know certain aspects throughout history. We know World War II happened. We know World War I happened. We know uh, the Roman Empire fell at this point in time. And we can build 
these pillars of things we absolutely know and then insert NPCs in a simulation to that point in time and try to see what they do and go, oh, well, maybe that's how it happened. We need to look here. We need to dig into this and we can recreate our own history. Or they wanted to see maybe this is a very far-fetched idea, but maybe it's an alien civilization that has seen primates on an Earth-like planet and are going, hey, or on Earth, I should say, and are going, hey, if we seeded Earth by changing the simian species into Homo sapiens sapiens, what would those Homo sapiens sapiens end up being? And ran this super complex simulation that we're still in today to see how long it would take humanity to reach a certain point or to see if, Hey, if we do this, are they going to destroy this planet? Are they going to get off the planet? Are they going to become a parasite like culture? And, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, scorched earth, the entire cosmos. Is this an experiment we should run? The, the possibilities are all equally insane um, to try to think and wrap your head around. But if we can imagine running a simulation and we have currently the tools to run a simulation like this at a small scale, it is entirely possible that we are currently in a simulation being run by people like us or other entities or whatever, most likely humans with, you know, a hundred years from now trying to figure some shit out, but it explains a lot of little things, right? The Mandela effect, they change something for whatever reason, you know, an algorithmic change, a patch or, um, Oh fuck. You know, the, uh, experiment got a little fucked up cause this person died and it had all these chain and reactionary events that we didn't foresee. So we got to go back and fix that or whatever the case may be, those little tiny changes. And every time you make a change like that, like we were talking about with time travel, it is systemic and it, it, it's, it's like a, breaking a window, right? It's spider webs in all these different directions and crazy patterns you couldn't predict. And some of us, even though we received the code, Hey, update this memory slot to this. For those that don't know, when you delete data from a hard drive, it is not gone. There is a master file record, right? that says these ones and zeros are this stuff. There's a flag at the very beginning of all those ones and zeros that identifies what the ones and zeros behind after it are going to be. If you say, hey, delete this document, that flag turns from a one to a zero, but all the data is still there until it's overwritten by something else. So if we're in a simulation, and say Nelson Mandela died in prison, that flag is a one. Right after it, Nelson Mandela dies in prison. Then they change it because too many things got fucked up and we need him to survive and become the president. They change it to a zero. But rather than overriding that data, 
<clears throat> they supplement it with a new file that gets a flag of one with new data <clears throat> because maybe storage isn't a, a big deal. Or if this one gets, and more likely, if this one gets fucked up, we'll turn that to a zero, go back to the other one that's a known good state, right? So you keep the old one until the new one is sustained. Makes sense from an IT perspective. But some of us, for whatever reason, ghost in the shell, programming error, whatever, our one didn't get flipped to a zero. So we still remember the original timeline. If we're in a simulation, it explains that. If we're in a simulation, it explains deja vu. Something happened and they backed us up to the last save file 30 seconds ago, 50 seconds ago, 10 minutes ago, 10 days ago, whatever. And as you're moving back through your save file, your, especially if like your save file wasn't the problem, it was somebody else's, but we had to go 10 days back on the whole system. You're going to make the same choices you already made because you didn't know there was a problem, right? Or in theory, you're probably going to. So as you're going down the line, making the same choices, you're getting deja vu because you've already done it. It also explains um, why we see similar faces. Like you were talking about before with like the pictures they sent you of like Nicolas Cage and um, uh, John Travolta and that, right? On one hand, we can explain it as genetics. Way, way down the line, you have a, a descendant Sometimes, you know, genetics do weird shit and you get a carbon copy of yourself down the line. Could also be if I'm a programmer and I had to program 5 billion NPCs and 10 of them die and I need to create 10 more, which is easier to do? Build a brand new NPC from the ground up every single time or create say two and a half billion from scratch top to bottom. And every time one dies, you go to the, the, the one that dies is on the far right. Okay. All the way at the end of your file on the right hand side, that one dies. You go all the way back in time to the first person that you created. Take that. Cause that person's already dead. Put it to the right hand side, change the hair color, change its background, change its starting feet, change a couple ability scores, and hit save and make that the new NPC. It's far easier to just recycle than to build new every time, which could explain past lives. It could explain uh, partial deja vu there as well. It can explain why people look very, 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 very similar dozens of decades apart or centuries apart. A simulation, unfortunately, makes sense. But I don't like it either. <laughs> it's mind bottling. It's really hurts your head. But it does 
makes sense. And like when we see glit, what people have been calling glitches in the matrix, right? It explains that too. Like it happened to me today. I was on my walk around work that I take every uh, two hours or so. I looked up in the sky and we had been getting a little bit of rain off and on all day. So it's very cloudy, but it's one of those days where even though it's cloudy, the sky is pretty bright and there were some dark clouds. As I looked straight out in front of me up towards the horizon in the sky, there was very light white clouds to the left, very light white clouds to the right. There was a clearing of, of blue sky in the middle. And then in the middle of that clearing was a giant dark cloud that just stood out and looked completely fake. Like I can't put it into any other words. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's in the sky. I know the sky is real. It's not, I know it's not a projection. I know it's not fake, but it looks fake. Like when you look at like an AI created image of a person and there's just something wrong about it, that uncanny Valley kind of thing. That's how the cloud looked. There was just, I couldn't put my finger on why it just didn't look right. A simulation that makes sense. Randomly generated sky and clouds and weather patterns are going to have anomalies that don't fit. Or I'm completely batshit crazy. One of the two. <laughs> but I feel like I'm in good company because like um, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Elon Musk believe we're in a simulation. So I can't be too far oh. off. There you go. Sorry for the tangent yet again. Why? Why are you sorry? <laughs> That's what this show is. Uh, I'm not as smart as you. I can't keep up with you. So I just I just let you go. <laughs> oh, you're as smart as me. It's just we it's like there's going to be topics where you're just running circles around me as well. It's just, you know, we what? come from you different know, don't, backgrounds don't. and stuff. No, don't bullshit me. Just, you know, keep, I'm not. Just, just take the compliment. All right. I'm blowing smoke up your ass. <laughs> Man, don't blow smoke up my ass. I'm not dead. <laughs> Going back to the first story. So I do have my one uh, funny uh, true story from my personal life. Did you have another story before I tell that one? Nope. You go for all it. Right. I, I didn't want to just like bogart the conversation like I've been doing for the last 10 minutes. Um, So picture it. There I am in the middle of Iraq, 2000 and would have been, we left late 2005. So this probably would have been mid 2006 or so. Um, we get air, what they called air assault. Cause they wanted to sound cool. For those that don't know, air assault where you jump out of a fucking perfectly good helicopter on a fast rope. Uh, it's, it's just a rope. They call it fast rope. Cause you fall down the rope basically and catch yourself slowly as you go down and come to a stop at the end and get off safely. But you've, you come down very quickly so that everybody can get off the helicopter as quickly as possible. The helicopter can leave without getting fired at. Right. That's the idea. We didn't go to, uh, air assault school. So we have no idea how to do that. Um, but we're in the infantry and they want to drop us onto a remote location, get us off the helicopter, 
have us do a big patrol that results in us being back at our duty station, our little patrol base. So that's the general idea of what they wanted to do. Again, we're not trained for this. So they have us trained for 20 minutes of uh, practicing getting on and off the helicopter so we don't get killed by the rotor blades. Which basically equates to you run at an angle, get in, put the stuff on, you fly where you got to go, you spin the dial to unhook the uh, harness, you jump out the side of the aircraft while ducking your head, immediately get into the prone position, which is face down in the dirt, wait for the helicopter to take off and shoot at anybody trying to shoot the helicopter. That's it. They called it aerosol. It was basically get the fuck out of my car um, with a helicopter. So we aerosol into this position and we are set to do a 15 kilometer patrol. It's a very long day. We have a lot of heavy shit on. The first house we get to, we have to clear every single house because we don't know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. So we go to clear this house. Inside is being searched by another team. My team leader tells me to search the outside of the house on the right hand side. I bring my battle buddy with me because, hey, there could be somebody over there. We come around the side of the house, do our little high-low. Everything's good. We come up, and I notice there's this very large, um, like a tin roof um, section that's on the ground. And I can see on the side of it that there's a hole underneath it. Some of you were probably way ahead of me because you've been there and you know what this is. I did not know. I just thought I've got to clear the house. There's IEDs all over this country. They're buried in holes. There's a hole next to a house that's potentially a target house. I have to clear this. That's as far as my brain went. I pointed it out to my battle buddy. He said, yep, I agree. I said, all right, you uh, keep your rifle on it. Keep a very close eye on it. I'll lift this thing up. If you see booby traps, you see wires, or you see somebody, you let me know or you shoot them and we'll go from there, right? I'm lifting this thing up when like a Mike Tyson punch to the face, I am immediately brought to the awareness that what my brain is now being assaulted with is the smell of rancid, stagnant human fecal waste because this whole thing this hole that is being covered up by this tin sheet is the exit port um staging area for all of the shit and piss underneath the house that gets so basically the part of the euphrates river is pumped under the house it goes through this hole at the top of the hole is where they're shitting and pissing. It falls down into the bottom of this hole. The Euphrates River washes the poop and pee into this hole dug on the side of the house. Then when the house, when that shitter's full, they pull up a block that goes all the way down about 20 feet in this hole. They pull this pole up, this uh, you know wooden thing, and all of the shit water is pushed out by the river into the fields to fertilize the fields. That's how it's done. It sounds really disgusting to us, but it's a great fertilizer. Anyway, 
I'm lifting this thing up. I get punched in the face by the smell. My battle buddy starts going, trying not to throw up. I drop the thing. It slams back down. We take a second. We catch our breath. We're good. I'm like, don't tell anybody about that. And he's like, good. And I go to move to the back side of the house. He's taking the correct path and going wide around this thing. I'm a dumb private. I'm walking on the bricks on the side of the house, the siding of the house, to get around this thing with about a four-inch clearance between the tin sheet and what I'm walking on. And all of the bricks are made out of, like, Pueblo kind of stuff. It's like mud, dirt, and sometimes animal fecal matter, you know, to make the brick. So they're they're not... Some of them aren't really well made and uh, it broke underneath my weight. So my left foot is on broken slipping rocks and gives out from underneath me. I swing out with my right leg to try to catch myself. And again, I'm like four inches away from this thing. So my foot hits nothing but tin sheet, sends the tin sheet flying off behind me and over my head. And my entire right leg goes about all the way up to my hip in raw human sewage. I then had to pull myself out with my battle buddy who's trying not to puke, rejoin the rest of the platoon, and march for about another 14 and a half kilometers covered in shit. And... We have cargo pockets and you field strip your MRE, which is you open your MRE, take everything out. You pull out all the things you're going to eat, put it back in the bag, put it in your pocket. The same pocket that is now filled to the brim with rancid human shit. So I have to go 15 kilometer, 14 and a half kilometers with no food. And I'm just already miserable just sitting in the field on it, taking a knee facing out hating my life at this point. And uh, my team leader comes up to check on me and he goes, Hey Phillips, how you, <gasps> he can't get anywhere near me due to the smell. And he has a weak stomach and uh, proceeds to puke in a bush for a little bit. And for the rest of the patrol, I am uh, basically kept at uh, a three to five meter length away from everybody and ostracized to the corner of every room we go into. Then when we get back, I have to uh, take a what's called a gravity shower, which is there's a giant tank of water on a very rickety wooden tower uh, that has a hose that comes out of it to a shed. Inside the shed, it's hooked to a shower nozzle like a shower head, uh, but more like the ones that are at the end of a watering can than a real one. And you turn a, uh, the valve to open it and water just falls on you and you take a shower. So not the greatest way to get clean. Um, that's the only thing I had to do to wash off caked human shit off my body. And then I had to burn my entire uniform because I chose that over washing it in, uh, military uh, washing machines. 
that would have taken me another 30 days to get to because we only go on refit every 45 days. Sounds like an awful time. Yeah. It's funny now. It wasn't funny then. No, I don't imagine it was. <laughs> yeah, and I also get to spend like the next six, seven months. Hey, remember that time you fell in human shit? Yeah. All part of all part of it, right? Embrace the suck, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. But uh I walk I you know came home from Iraq knowing exactly what burning human hair smells like, uh burning human flesh smells like, and uh rancid, stagnant, two hundred degree human poop smells like. Mm. Don't recommend any of those. No. So that's all, that's all the ones that I've got. Uh, hopefully the last one was a little funny and less serious, but, but that's, uh, that's all I got. Did you have any more of them? Nope. No, sir. All right. Well, I think that just about does it for us on this episode, unless you have anything else. Uh, we do hope you enjoyed the discussion. Yeah. Um, uh... Please join us next week for another episode. But in the meantime, join us over on Twitch, Twitter, Discord, TikTok, and Hover. You can find Carl over uh, K-A-R-L-B-A-N-N-S-O-N-R. Um, T-T-T-V or T-T-V. T-T-V. <laughs> yes. At the beginning with uh, Twitter and Hover. That's uh, Hover and YouTube, yep. Hover and YouTube. Okay. Oh, yeah. He's got YouTube on there, too. And then you can find me on everything with the same one. D-A-R-K-W-I-C-A-H-P-I on everything but Twitter. Twitter has one extra D at the very beginning. Yep. And again, all of our previous episodes will be available on Anchor.fm, Amazon Prime Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podvine, and Spotify. We hope you join uh, our community on Twitch and on Discord. We really appreciate you tuning in. And this episode, uh, episode four, This Happened, is going to be uh, uploaded by 2 or 3 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday. Yep. Thank you for uh, tuning in. We look forward to having many more discussions. we usually end up figuring out what what we discuss like a handful of days before we record. So, yeah, and don't forget if you join our Discord server, you'll actually be able to chime in the conversation, give us suggestions, feedback, questions, and we'll try to uh, bring up that feedback and those questions at the end of each podcast episode. Uh, also, if you have a really good idea of what we should cover, you can throw it up in that. Uh, discord server and there's a good chance that we'll go ahead and do that oh yeah we're just a couple of guys just discussing as you as you saw a lot of stuff and going off the rails for about 20 30 minutes <laughs> each time yeah <laughs> uh rails are definitely coming off at some point during all of these episodes our rails are very swervy yeah I mean, you know the road less traveled right that's right <laughs> Well, that's it. Beaten path, follow that. <laughs> well, that's it for me. Uh, I'm your resident Raven Charles. 
And I am your crow, Isaiah. Have a great night, and we'll see you next time. Good night, everybody. Thank you.